Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, what a uh, momentous week this has been. Can you believe it was only 10 days ago that we woke up to the news that as a nation we'd voted to leave the EU? Since then, the Prime Minister has resigned. It appears the Leader of the Opposition has been squeezed out of office. There are accusations of treachery as the Conservative Party seek to find a new leader. Those who campaign for Brexit seem to have little or no idea what to do next. One uh, lovely couple left church this morning saying to me, and these are people who are in their 90s, they've seen plenty of life. They said to me this morning, we have never known a time like it when the country has been so lacking in leadership. I am a Five Live listener, so every morning this week I've woken up to a diet of politics and sport, and with the political situation being so turbulent, one of the Five Live correspondents said, with everything that's going on right now, what this nation needs is for Andy Murray to win Wimbledon and Wales to triumph at the Euros next Sunday. So that is what we have been reduced to, thinking that this nation needs to win a couple of sporting fixtures We all know what this nation needs is direction, hope, something sure and certain and steadfast. And of course, that is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. And that is why it is so important that we, as the people of God, are all that we should be. The Bible book of Ezra that we've been looking at over the past nine weeks, this is the ninth week, is all about us being reformed into being the people we should be. And in the person of Ezra, we've met one who really does know how to give leadership to a nation. Last week, we listened to the magnificent prayer of confession that Ezra prayed in chapter 9. And chapter 10 continues, verse 1, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, A large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. Uh, That first verse shows us that Ezra really felt it. The way God's people had embraced the world's views and lifestyle really got to Ezra. And uh, not surprisingly, all his weeping and, and throwing himself down in public created quite a crowd. Verse 1, men, women and children gathered round him and they too wept bitterly. As they heard Ezra pray, they began to feel the gravity of their sin as a nation. Sometimes it does only take one person to respond in a, in a godly way to ignite God's people. So Ezra prayed, people gathered around him and then verse 2, Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. This is a key moment in God's people being reformed, becoming the people they ought to be. And it's a key moment in that Shechaniah calls it as it is. See, when he says we have been unfaithful to our God, he is refreshingly honest about his sin, about their sin. I have to say, I don't meet that kind of honesty very often these days. Now, when I meet with people in pastoral situations, all too often I find people justifying themselves 
and their actions. Explaining away why they did what they did, even if they've been caught red-handed. It's a very worrying trend, and it's a trend among God's people. Not just putting our hands up and saying, we sinned, I sinned, I failed. And it's worrying because if we try and explain and justify our sin, we'll never truly repent of it. I love the words that we sang earlier. Let me own all the wrongs that I've done. Let me now my sins deplore. Why? Because then I'll go to the Saviour. That's why Shechaniah's response here is not only refreshing, but crucial if God's people are to be reformed. He calls it as it is. He says, verse 2, we've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. Now, we touched on this uh, last time in chapter 9, but let me stop here for a moment because it's very important that we understand what's going on here. Please be sure there's nothing racist about Shechaniah's comment. Uh, Following the fallout from the EU referendum last week, it is very important that we get this clear. This past week, there have been many accusations of racism. Not all justified, I might add. That said, it does seem that a significant minority have made critical decisions prejudiced by bigoted xenophobic, xenophobic discrimination. So be sure the problem of intermarrying here was not an issue of race or ethnicity. The issue is theologically relational. It is, what I mean by that, it is the issue of a believer marrying somebody who isn't a believer. Not ethnicity, not race, but what we believe about our God. That is the kind of intermarrying that is being dealt with here. And that is a problem. As I said last time, if my closest human relationship and my greatest human loyalty is to someone who does not follow the Lord, if I'm a believer, that will very likely have a detrimental effect on my relationship with the Lord. If the person that I am closest to has a completely different worldview, and anyone who doesn't follow the Lord Jesus will have a completely different worldview, then I will find it very difficult to remain faithful to the Lord and to serve him unreservedly. That is exactly what was happening in Ezra's day. As we read in chapter 9, verse 1, they had not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples and their detestable practices. See, marrying people with another belief system, the people of God had embraced those other beliefs and with it their practices. And that is an issue that is just as relevant today uh, for any Christian as it was back then. Intermarrying, a committed Christian marrying somebody who isn't a follower of Jesus Christ causes many Christians to fall away from following Jesus Christ. It's not just something that I've seen over the last 25 years of pastoral ministry, but it's something that my colleagues see and uh, everyone I speak to, but nobody seems to believe it. So may I state as strongly as I can and as clearly as I can, yet as gently as I can, if you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ and not married at the moment, do not marry someone who isn't a committed follower of Jesus Christ because they are likely to lead you away from following Jesus Christ. 
That is the headline. Let me flesh out some of the reasons before we turn back to the passage. First, it is hard enough to keep going in the Christian life as it is. Don't you find it hard to live the Christian life? I do. I find it really hard to keep going. So I need all the help I can get. That's why I need to come here every week to be with you people. You're such an encouragement to me. I certainly need, if I'm going to be married, I need my spouse, the person I spend most time with, the person I spend my life with, I need my spouse to help me in the Christian life, not to be even neutral, because I need all the help I can get. So Caroline encourages me to pray and to read the Bible. I should encourage her to read the Bible and pray as well. I try to, but she's much better at doing it for me. She supports me in in, in, in me being actively involved in the church family. You would hope that I would because I'm the vicar, but I'm saying as a Christian, she says you should be involved with God's people. Caroline wants me to grow in godliness. In short, she helps me to live the Christian life. I need the help. I need your help. I certainly need her help. I found this book extremely helpful. It's um, uh, by Tim Keller. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. I do recommend it. In this book... Uh, among many other things, Keller explains why Christian marriage is a terrific environment where we can help each other to become more godly. He says, our spouses know us best of anyone else in the world. Caroline knows me better than anyone. You see me, you know, on my best behaviour. She sees me warts and all. She sees me as I really am when I'm tired. She knows what I'm really like. So she, better than anyone else, can help me to see where I should change. And this is the point that Keller makes so brilliantly. Because she loves me, because she loves me unconditionally, I know that when she points out things that I should change, she is committed to helping me change. And she is not doing it to get at me, but because she loves me, to help me, to grow in godliness. Christian marriage is a brilliant environment for us to grow in godliness. Perhaps more positively, here's another reason to always be married to a Christian if you're not yet married and you have a choice of who you marry. Be married to a Christian means we can pray together and read the Bible together. We can serve God together by opening our home because we both want to do that. We have the same priorities in life which helps us to work out how we use our time and our money None of that is possible if you're married to someone who's not a Christian. Why would, if you're not yet married and you have a choice to marry a Christian, why would you not want to do that? And then I think of our children. My children are the people I love more than anyone else in the world. The thing that I want most for them, above everything else, they know this, so it's nothing that, that, uh, as they're here tonight, they, they, they don't know already. The thing I want most of them in everything in the world is that they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from me, the person who will most shape and influence my children is my wife. Why would I want to be married to someone who will not positively influence my children to follow Jesus? Look, I cannot think why a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ would not want to marry a committed Christian. So, Again, let me say it very clearly but lovingly. If you are a committed Christian, don't even start dating an unbeliever because if you do, you may fall in love with them and even if you know it's not right to marry them, it will break your heart to break up with them 
and then you will find ways to justify your decision and you'll marry them anyway. And I know that because I have sat so many times opposite a couple, one a Christian and the other one a not, and they say they want to get married. And I encourage them that it's not good for them to do so, but they are already in love and they just think I'm being mean. Statistically, it is far more likely that they will pull you away from the Lord than that you will help them to become a Christian. It does happen that way around sometimes, but why do you want to take the risk? Let's take a leaf out of Shechaniah's book and call it what it is. It is unfaithfulness for a committed Christian to marry an unbeliever. It is saying the Lord is not more, more important to me. He is not the most important person in my life. And it is saying, I don't actually believe what he says. I think I know better. So Shechaniah calls it what it is, unfaithfulness. But he's also aware of the grace and mercy of God. And so he says, end of verse 2, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Yes, there is always hope for God's people when we turn back to the Lord in repentance. And that is what verse 3 is about. It's about making a covenant before God to change. End of verse 3, to live according to God's law. And for Israel in Ezra's day, that meant, verse 3, sending away their foreign wives. Now, crucially, before we go any further, let me state very clearly, that is not what the New Testament says Christians should do. Of course, we should ask the question here, why the difference? This is what I think makes this passage so difficult. Why the difference? Dale Ralph Davis writes, Is not Ezra chapters 9 and 10 a unique situation, a unique emergency? Remember what was at stake, he writes, the survival of a definable people of God in this world. His point is if they carried on with this, they would no longer be distinctive as a people. Uh, They would just become like every other nation. I uh, had to turn to my colleagues to help me to try and understand this. And Ben wonderfully explained it further like this. The basis for us being the definable people of God in this world has changed, he says. In Ezra's time, it was the law marked by circumcision. For us, it is faith in Christ. The believer in Christ is made holy by Christ and cannot be made unholy merely by having an unbelieving spouse. Christians married to unbelievers are therefore encouraged to stay with and win over their unbelieving spouses rather than divorce them. That's 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3. Indeed, we might add that God hates divorce. The point is, if you're married to someone who isn't a Christian, do not divorce them. You may have become a Christian since marrying. Stay with your unbelieving spouse. You may have been a Christian who married an unbelieving spouse, whether you should or shouldn't have done that. Stay married to your unbelieving spouse. Indeed, pray for them and live a godly life in the hope that they will become a Christian. And because I know this is such a deeply painful and personal subject for some here, allow me to assure you, if you are married to someone who isn't a Christian, you are as much a member of this church family as everyone else. Let me assure you, you are a valued and important part of this church family. Let me assure you, you are not a second-class Christian or a second-class member of this church family. 
Importantly, then, this chapter is not a paradigm for the church to follow when it comes to being married to unbelievers. But as Dale Ralph Davis so helpfully said, it is an issue of the survival of a definable people of God in this world. So this chapter does give us principles to help us change when we, the church, are not living distinctive lives in any area. When we've embraced practices that are not Christian, when we have become like the world, in here we have steps that are laid out to help us to change, to be reformed into being the people we should be. We've already seen how Shek and I are called their actions what they were, unfaithfulness. We need to do that. If ever we see things that aren't right, we need to hold our hands up and say, it's not right, it's not what the Bible says. And then we've seen how Shek and I called on his people to make a covenant with God, promising that they would change. We need to do that. We need to make corporate agreements sometimes that we, we're going to change in areas where we're not living as we should. And when we do that, end of verse 2, there is a hope for God's people because in Jesus Christ, God always has his arms open to welcome back those who truly repent of their sin. And you see, when that is done corporately by a whole people in the book of Ezra, a whole nation, for us a whole church, then reformation begins to happen. And so Shachaniah said to Ezra, verse 4, rise up. This matters in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. As we considered back in chapter 7, Reformation needs a leader with the Bible in his hands. But clearly, a Reformation only happens when others are in support. And so with Shechaniah's backing, verse 5, Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. I love that. The leaders pledged themselves to a a formal corporate commitment to live faithfully to God. That is a very powerful thing. I think of the the Clapham sect, as they were called, that group of Church of England Christian leaders based in and around Clapham at the turn of the 19th century. The group was founded by Henry Venn, but it uh, is perhaps uh, William Wilberforce who is the most famous and most celebrated of that group. The Clapham sect were were Christian leaders. They committed to seeing social reform in Britain. They founded or were involved with the Anti-Slavery Society, the Abolition Society, the Proclamation Society, the Sunday School Society, the Bettering Society, the Small Debt Society. They were very influential in bringing about all sorts of reforms in this nation. Most, Most obvious to us is the abolition of slavery. My point is when a group of Christian leaders formally commit themselves publicly and before God to faithfully live before the Lord and then they go on to live it out, great things happen. Things change. A whole nation can be reshaped. Just the Clapham sect, a handful of leaders, changed a nation, changing the world. I would love it here if at Christchurch Forward the leadership here would publicly commit to doing everything we could in the next 20 years to see the church reformed in Sheffield and South Yorkshire. We could make a difference. A group of leaders committed to the reformation of God's church is a powerful thing, but underpinning it all must be what we see in verse 6. 
Ezra withdrew from the house of God and went to the room of Jehoahan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. You see, again, it's so important to see this. All of chapter 9 and at the beginning of chapter 10, we've seen Ezra publicly praying, confessing, weeping over the unfaithfulness of God's people. Here in verse 6, we see it wasn't a show. What he did in public reflected what he did in private, and it was deeply heartfelt. Who was it who said a man is only what he is when he is alone with his God? If behind Reformation in the church are great Christian leaders, then behind great Christian leaders is a life of sincere private prayer. I read the biographies of, uh, of Christian leaders, and again and again you'll read of them rising early to pray. I think of the, uh, the Christian leader John Stott, who, who died uh, five years ago now. In 2005, Time magazine ranked Stott among the 100 most influential people in the world. I read his uh, biography. This is the first of uh, two, uh, two parts. Read his biography and you'll discover that he got up at five o'clock in the morning to pray. He also took an afternoon nap for 30 minutes every day. I can tell you that I've adopted one of those two disciplines. <laughs> Look, the point is we need Christian leaders who pray, who pray earnestly. And so with private prayer and corporate prayer undergirding everything and a formal corporate commitment from the leaders of God's people to obey God's word, verse 7, a proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. I doubt we could quite do that, insist that everybody come to a public meeting and then confiscate their property if they didn't turn up and excommunicate them as well. But calling people together, the people of God together, to explain the situation is always possible. And so verse 9, within the three days... All the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion. And I heard you titter, and because of the rain. All the people gathered. Uh, From the numbers that we've added up through the book of Ezra, that is going to be in excess of 40,000 people. A group the size of a premiership football crowd. And they gathered outside the temple. I've been to the site in, the, in Jerusalem where the temple used to stand. And I can tell you, you could definitely get 40,000 people in the square outside. So this huge crowd gathered. And verse 9, they were greatly distressed. Yes, because of the situation, but also because of the rain. It's a great detail, isn't it? It was actually the 20th day of the ninth month. By our calendar, the 20th of December, 458 B.C., It was raining and cold, and the weather reflected the situation and the mood of the people, miserable. And as they sat there in the rain, Ezra said to them, verse 10, he stood up and said, you've been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. Again, you see, Ezra stated their sin. He called them to confess their sin, and then he called them to repent of their sin. 
Ultimately, he was calling on them to become the distinctive, unique people of God. And what a response, verse 12. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you're right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here and it's the rainy season so we can't stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we've sinned greatly in this thing. Again, I love it. There's no excuses. They faced up to their sin. You're right. They recognized the gravity of the situation. And they knew it would take some time to work it out. And so they said, verse 14, let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who's married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. And then only the four characters mentioned in verse 15, only those four opposed it. It's remarkable. A crowd of 40,000 people and only four opposed this suggestion. When so many people are united in repentance, you know that reformation is happening. And so, verse 16, the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who'd married foreign women. It took them three months, 75 days to be precise, to listen to 111 cases. They didn't rush the process because they were dealing with real lives and real lives are complex and so they systematically work through the situation one by one but it took time I think that's very important to note yes repentance needs to be decisive there needs to be a commitment to change we've seen that they were committed but it also takes time to work it out to unravel the complexities of sin in people's lives. It doesn't get sorted out overnight. The important thing is, though, they were committed to doing that. The book then ends with the list of all those people who had intermarried. As we've seen all the way through this book, the details of these lists are important. Two details for you as we close then. There are, as I've mentioned, 111 people listed in verses 18 to 44. And it strikes me that 111 people out of 40,000 is not many. It wasn't as widespread as you might think. But the point is, even when a minority among God's people have sinned, it affects everyone. As the Apostle Paul says, a little yeast can spread through the whole dough. They needed to sort with this now because it could have spread further, but already it was affecting everything. So even when a relatively few people are not living a distinctive Christian life in a church family, it affects the whole church family. Don't think that you can hide your sin away and it won't affect us. It will have an impact on us, all of us. Now that means if we're going to be going to see a reformation, we need to deal carefully and sensitively, even with a minority who are not living among us as they should. It means we mustn't tolerate obvious sin when we become aware of it. The second detail I note in this list is that the first people who are listed here are leaders. Verse 18, the priests. 
And then verse 23, the Levites. And verse 24, the singers and gatekeepers. These are the first people that are mentioned because leaders need to repent first and be disciplined first. For if leaders are not leading by example, they cannot expect people to follow. So the book ends with God's people determined to be the unique, distinctive people of God. So determined they will take drastic action to be distinctive. And when that final step is taken by the people of God collectively, then a reformation is realised. So as we get to the end of this book, I want to ask, how about it? Church family here. Shall we commit ourselves to this? Shall we commit ourselves to taking all the steps necessary, all the steps that we've seen in this book in order to be reformed into the church family we ought to be so that we can influence for good and with the gospel Fulwood and and Sheffield and South Yorkshire and who knows, maybe start something wonderful across this nation. There's no question the nation needs something wonderful to happen, more wonderful than the pleasure we'd get from Andy Murray winning Wimbledon and Wales lifting the cup next Sunday. We need something lasting and solid, something to give us direction in life and confidence in death. See, that is what we have in the momentous news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how about it? Taking it upon ourselves to do all we can to bring about a reformation, to change this part of the world. You know, we could start by all turning up at the church family prayer meeting on Wednesday. 